Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. spend some time this afternoon talking about the fourth chapter of the Yoga Sutra. This might be hard work like yesterday. (coughs) You can start though with your eyes closed because I'm going to read a poem. (coughs) The poem is entitled Waiting for a Ride and in keeping with so many good quotes from him this week, Bill. Read from Gary Snyder's last book. Standing at the baggage, passing time, Austin, Texas airport, my ride hasn't come yet. My former wife is making websites from her home. One son is seldom seen. The other one and his wife have a boy and a girl of their own. My wife and stepdaughter are spending weekends in town so she can get to high school. My mother, 96, still lives alone and she's in town too, always gets her sanity back just barely in time. My former former wife has become a unique poet. Most of my work, such as it is, is done. Full moon was October 2nd this year. I ate a moon cake, slept out on the deck, White light beaming through the black bows of pine, owl hoots and rattling antlers, castor and pollux rising strong. It's good to know that the pole star drifts, that even our present night sky slips away, not that I'll see it, or maybe I will much later, some far time walking the spirit path in the sky, that long walk of spirits where you fall right back into the narrow, painful, passageway of the bardo. Squeeze your little skull, and there you are again, waiting for your ride. So somehow every life form has its unique essence, although when you look into that essence, you just find forms in relationship to one another. And a mind that's creating form 
But then every form somehow squeezes itself into a new form. And then that form squeezes itself into another form, and so on. Infinitely. And it's that changing form that we're watching when we're watching the breath. It's the changing form that we're observing when we're in an asana, watching sensation, changing, thought changing, breath changing. Even the pole star, which seems like the most permanent thing, is constantly changing. So, fourth chapter of the Yoga Sutra talks about the way this change occurs. This is the chapter that deals with freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from samsara, conditioned existence. Samsara is a metaphor for meaninglessness. When we are caught up in the self-enclosure of self-reference, then things become meaningless. So this process of samadhi, if we think of it as a process, Patanjali says, can arise at birth. You're born into it. Some people, they're born into it. Or through the use of plant teachers. You eat some peyote. First you throw up, and then you have samadhi. From intonations, from chanting, or through practices of austerity and renunciation, psychological renunciation. So there's different ways of achieving samadhi, but remember, if samadhi is not the goal of yoga, and it's only a state or a process that one uses, it's only one of eight limbs, and if the limbs are not linear, but actually circular, and the loop back into one another, then we can see how samadhi then becomes just another strategy toward yoga, toward the experience of interpermeation, union, interdependence, or what we were calling yesterday, horizontal transcendence. So, so Patanjali says you can have the experience of samadhi through any one of these things. Um, sometimes I like to interpret them as um, giving or witnessing birth. That can be many different things. Uh, through the use of herbs and so on. But he doesn't say that that is going to sustain your practice. And I think a lot of people have this experience where you, you know, you drop acid and then you have an experience of samadhi, but we still have habit in the mind that identifies the content with the experience and then there's no way to integrate it. So you have this insight, but you can't integrate it when you come down off of the, the drug. So, does it count? Of course. Of course it counts as a 
valid experience of samadhi, but can it be integrated? Well, Patanjali doesn't say here that it necessarily can. He doesn't say that it's going to take you straight into the heart of yoga. He just says it can give you an experience of samadhi. Being delivered into a new form comes about when natural forces overflow. Being delivered into a new form comes about when natural forces overflow. The transformation into this form or that is not driven by the causes proximate to it, just oriented by them the way a farmer diverts a stream for irrigation. This is the only metaphor in the text. It's the only time he's using a metaphor to describe something. A simile. The transformation into this form or that is not driven by the causes proximate to it, just oriented by them the way a farmer diverts a stream for irrigation. Just like somebody who's a gardener knows that you are not responsible for growing spinach. You're not responsible for growing morning glories. Your work is just to create the right conditions that are proximate to what's growing so that what can grow has the right environment for growing. If you neglect it, it may not grow. And if you're right on top of it, pruning it like crazy, it also probably won't grow. And the same is true for your practice. If you neglect it, it falls apart. If you're too on top of it, you get caught up in the superficiality of technique and manipulation, and then you don't actually have the experience. Kind of like when we're sitting this morning. If you're watching your breath, and then you get too tight around the technique of watching the breath, the breath starts getting tight, and you feel it in the body. You have to have this balance in what's often considered stira and sukha, this kind of steadiness and ease. Too much steadiness, the whole thing gets stiff. Too much ease, it all gets sloppy. In my mind, I always think of stira and sukha as elegance, that when you put steadiness and ease together, you get elegance. Does a doctor say that they're responsible for healing their patients? If you are a doctor and you think that you're the person who's healing your patients, you're quite inflated, I think. I think a good doctor knows that their job is just to get the conditions right for healing to take place. But you are not responsible for the healing. And it's interesting because I think people who are therapists and do helping work in that domain they have such a high burnout rate. Therapists burn out like crazy. They're not burning out on the work. They're burning out on bad theory. And the theory is usually that they somehow have to help people. And when we're too caught up in trying to help people, rather than trying to hand back to people their own experience of healing, then we burn out because we're working too hard. Way too hard. You see people practicing like this. 
like practicing too hard, working too hard in their practice. None of you, I think, suffer from that. But. <laughs> It'd be nice, maybe, if you suffer from that. <laughs> This group is more on the sukha side. I think. <laughs> Can I have some sugar with that posture? <laughs> feeling like a self, asmita, feeling like a self, is the frame that orients consciousness towards individuation. Feeling like a self is a frame that orients chitta to continue producing a me-oriented form of consciousness. A succession of consciousnesses generating a vast array of distinctive perceptions appear to consolidate into one individual consciousness. So if the ear is having ear consciousness and the nose is having nose consciousness and the eye, so if there's six different consciousnesses, all your sense organs in your mind, if those are different consciousnesses, because you have six sense organs, your five sense organs in your mind, then if you look into your eye seeing form, you can't find me in that. In the same way that if we're going to meditate on sound, there's no place where you can find the me in the sound. Right? I doesn't exist in what yesterday we were reading Eliot Deutsch, he says, in the ontological substratum of non-duality. Do you remember that? There's no me in that. So if you look in all the sense organs and you see that there are these different consciousnesses, then, and each one it creates a, its own distinct array, it's a nice image, then you see that the moment is built up of all these consciousnesses that happen like this. The way I like to think about it is if you had a house with six windows, and each window is a different sense organ, and you can only look through the ear window, you, can, you have to run to the ear window to get sound. You have to run over to the skin window to get touch. You have to run in every moment. That's how the mind is working. So in that moment, there was a lot of running around there. That's how fast the brain works. Please read up on this in the little article that I've handed out called Minding the Body. Something like that. Body and Mind or something. About how neuroscience sees this. So all of that comes together and it feels like that's happening to me. A succession of consciousnesses generating a vast array of distinctive perceptions appear to consolidate into one individual consciousness, the, the, the conceit I am, or what we often call self-cherishing. Once consciousness is fixed in dhyana, meditative concentration, it no longer contributes to the store of latent impressions. 
That's interesting. So when the mind is focused and totally absorbed, then the object starts to disappear and chitta comes to an end. And then you do not contribute to a new groove in the mind and the body. You interrupt the groove-making process in the brain, in the body, in the nervous system. By not being focused on either of your senses. Being completely absorbed in your experience. Well, that would be wrong. Being completely absorbed in experience, not in your experience. Yeah. Um, hopefully not, because then you have to go take action. There's a wonderful story about a monk who was in his forest, uh, in his forest hut, and he was making potatoes, which is all the food that he had at the time. And he's cooking potatoes over the fire, and then there's a knock at the door. Of course, there's no answer because he's fully absorbed in the making potatoes. And uh, someone's outside knocking and knocking. Finally, they open the door because they know the monk is inside and they haven't seen him for a while. They open the door and there's a monk sitting there and there it stinks in there. And they open up the pot of uh, potatoes there and it's all moldy and there's maggots in it. And uh, they wake up the monk who's just sitting there in samadhi. And he had been there for a couple of months. He was so involved in the making of potatoes that he just became a potato. <laughs> and someone had to pull him out of it. So it's hard to say how long you can sustain it. So what happens when you get out of it, right? So you're yeah. no longer that absorption. Yeah. Then the concentration starts building. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Yep. You know how sometimes like, people don't have a climb or they do anything? Mm-hmm. Not yoga, but it's something that's like they're totally immersed in it, mm-hmm. and they're very focused on that. Mm-hmm. Would that experience still be similar to samadhi? Or mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. There are know. different levels of samadhi, okay. but that would be... Yeah. So any experience that you're fully immersed in, it's not about either you're just experiencing it, like the sunset thing before you yeah. acknowledge it as a sunset, yeah. that's basically... The beginning of samadhi. Beginning of samadhi. And everybody here has had that experience. Okay. So does the experience, does that not necessarily kind of like that? Not necessarily going to um, get you to enlightenment. What's enlightenment? Well, I don't know. But just no, it's not the goal. Not the goal. But it's an important practice. Yeah. And Patanjali spends a whole chapter on that. Mm-hmm. Um, the first chapter. Yeah. Um, it would be like saying. It would be like starting to think that one of your asanas is the goal of yoga. Do you ever get caught up in that? (laughs) You know, if I can just practice Natarajasana, which really is, Natarajasana is one of those postures that basically has everything in it. You know, it's, it's balancing on one leg and holding. You're working on it in pigeon pose and holding your foot. That posture has every posture in it. Every posture you can think of is in that posture. Um, almost. Um, 
if you rank that as the goal of your yoga practice, you're missing out on something. But if you see that as a very important part of the practice in the context of the eight limbs, then you can see how that strategy is important for demonstrating or orienting the mind towards yoga. That makes sense. Yeah. If, it, if you think of it as being a final thing, then of course, once you get to there, there's going to mm-hmm. be something else. Yeah. Let me read something here. I'll just read it out loud. This is in the back of your text. This is how this is a, a definition of Ashtanga Yoga, the eight limbs, um, from Richard Freeman. Ashtanga means eight limbs and refers to a yoga practice which is evolving into deep spontaneous meditation and complete liberation. The variety of limbs pay attention to this. The variety of limbs guarantees that the awareness operates in all spheres of one life, one's life so that no distortion, perversion, or fantasy will attempt to usurp the solid ground of real yogic insight. In many of the yoga Upanishads, the eight limbs are further expanded into fifteen. The advantage of considering the path of yoga to have many aspects is that one is encouraged not to neglect the moral, the ethical, the interpersonal, the physiological, the esoteric, and the meditative aspects of practice. The term ashtanga implies both a simultaneous realization of all these interrelated aspects of practice and a logical step-by-step progression where one limb prepares one to truly practice the next one. Right? So having more than one limb guarantees that one limb is going to pay attention to the shadow of another limb. And then you need another limb to pay attention to the shadow of those limbs, and another limb to pay attention to the residue from those limbs. And then you have a system where you're getting different angles in the system so that it gets every little corner of your life. And what it also does is then you're not caught in turning the system into one thing. So if you're just into the the logic or the philosophical rigor, the meditative insight is going to challenge that and support that. And if you say, oh, forget the esoteric, well, then the esoteric aspects of the limbs, like chapter 3, are going to challenge that. So the physiological is going to challenge the mental and so on, back and forth, until you start to get a kind of well-rounded practice. Line number seven. The actions of a realized yogi transcend good and evil, whereas the actions of others may be good or evil or both. Do you remember we were talking about how there's a point in your absorption where there's true nature? Where suddenly, it's not that you can operate outside of ethics, but you see the conceptualization of an ethical system. That ethics now are empty. It doesn't mean there's no ethics. We're talking about within samadhi. Action starts to come apart, 
and you see there is just what is. You're not turning it anymore into right and wrong. You're also probably sitting still and not getting into too much trouble. That's why when people say sometimes, <coughs> how is my meditation practice social action? And the quick response is that if you sit still right here for an hour, you're not getting into trouble. And that's a significant <laughs> contribution to the culture. Yeah. It's hard right now with Joanna here for Ernst and Young to do its thing on base. Yeah. That's a significant contribution to culture. Joanna goes back to work and it all goes downhill. <laughs> I don't mean that serious. <laughs> Each action comes to fruition by coloring latent impressions according to its quality, good, evil, or both. We're going to we're just going to move through this a little bit because there's some more I want to focus on. Because the depth memory and its latent impressions are of a piece, their dynamic of cause and effect flows uninterruptedly across the demarcations of birth, place, and time. So because depth memory, this isn't just your mind, but in your body, there is a, a layer of memory there. I mean, how many traits do you have that are like your parents? Or how many traits are like your grandparents? I remember when I was learning how to do case histories, learning how to be a therapist, I was studying at the time with James Hillman, and he had this um, great exercise we had to do where we would, uh, in partners, we would work together and you had to take someone's case history, but you weren't allowed to ask them about their personal life or their parents, only about their ancestors. And the purpose of the exercise was twofold. One, to see how it's impossible to take a case history, how a case history is pure fiction. And second, how if you don't focus on the personal, then you can still create a case history. But it's transpersonal, right? It's bigger than just your personal recollections. And of course, you don't know your great ancestors, but if you met them, you might be surprised, not how similar the locality of your life is, but how maybe they have a, a similar tight hip, or the same color eyes, or the same color hair. Or they too, you know, didn't want to have a kid, or wanted to live in the country, or, you know, whatever. So, that's what he's saying here. Because depth memory and its latent impressions are of a piece, latent impressions don't float around. They're in-depth memory. It's the samskaras. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, their dynamic of cause and effect, karma, flows uninterruptedly across the demarcations of birth, place, and time. They have always existed because the will to exist is eternal. Uh, I would switch the word eternal with perpetual. Why do the depth, why do those depth, those, those grooves and the deep recesses of mind and body keep going? Because they, there's momentum. 
they perpetuate each other. Since its cause, effect, basis, and object are inseparable, a latent impression disappears when they do. Okay, this one's a little bit more difficult to chew on. Since its cause, so what's the it here that's being referred to? Right. Since the cause, effect, basis, and object are inseparable, a latent impression disappears when they do. Well, when they, the cause, effect, basis, or... Any one of those. When any one of those disappears, the samskara actually falls apart. Because the samskara, for example, has to have an object. So chitta comes to an end, and the groove can't repeat itself, because consciousness is not flowing through, in and out of it. So we're talking about the end of karma. Is basis like the, the feeling or the recognition of a self or something like that? Could be. It also could just be as simple as, let's say, the eye is no longer taking in yeah. form and color. Yeah. Eye consciousness comes to an end. Chitta stops flowing. What groove can be made out of that? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing's happening. A new, a new groove is not being formed, and prana is not flowing through the grooves. It all comes to an end. The, the um, nirvoda of prana, of the vittis of prana, stops. It's supposed to be a little bit confusing. Let's keep going. Right. There's no what there's no response. Yeah. So that, that group falls away. Falls away. Yeah. yeah. The past and future are imminent in an object existing as different sectors in the same flow of experiential substances. The characteristic of these sectors, whether manifest or subtle, are imparted by the fundamental qualities of nature. Okay, so the gunas, have you heard this term guna before? A guna is like a strand. Um, Everything that moves, so this is Samkhya philosophy, everything that moves, um, everything that's impermanent, everything that you can perceive, is basically made up of three different things. Um, these are called the gunas, and it's called triguna, there are three gunas. The first guna is rajas. What does rajas mean? Something's rajasic. What's that? Royal. What else, what's the quality of rajas? Action, movement, energy, rajas. The next one is tamas. What's tamas? Inertia. Yeah. And the third one? Sattva. What is sattva? 
Yeah, lightness. Um, I don't know enough about protons, electrons, and neutrons, but it sounds awfully similar. That if you find the basic substratum of reality, it's made up of three different things. Those things are further made up of more things. But what's observable are these three qualities. Lightness, sattva, inertia, and movement, rajas, energy. So the three gunas are never in balance. They can't be in balance. They're always out of balance. So in a five-minute time period, you'll probably go through all of those. Or during the day, like right now is a tamasic time. You've eaten, you're digest. In the stomach, it's not tamasic. It's rajasic. Yeah. But there's a sense of inertia. Your energy is actually in your stomach right now. The heat is down there. Or the movement is down there. So things are always moving. It, likewise with this wall, right? I, I can't... This hand is not a structure. This hand is movement, right? But I can't put my hand through the wall because the particles, the gunas of the wall, are moving faster than the gunas of my hand. So it has more materiality, more substantiality. So I can't put my hand through the wall. That would be like, if you think of the wall as really like a, a fan spinning really fast, right? I can't put my hand through the fan because it's spinning so fast that it seems solid. Same with this floor. So those are what we mean by the fundamental qualities of nature. Yeah, well, listen to this next sentence. Their transformations tend to blur together, imbuing each new object with the quality of substantiality. People perceive, this is a very important sentence. This might be the most important sentence in the chapter. People perceive the same object differently as each person's perception follows a separate path from another's. In other words, because all of these pieces, these latent impressions, gunas, and so on, come together in Marco differently than Melinda, Marco is always going to have a different experience of the same thing than Melinda will. Subjectivity. That means that every one of you has a unique subjectivity and that I can't get inside your subjectivity. Which means you can't have objectivity. Because your perception always has to be filtered through your uniqueness. And that means your objectivity is also subjectivity. That means we all co-create experience together. Reality, relationally, is always intersubjective. So next time you're in an argument with your lover and you start claiming objectivity as though you actually, you know, I know why you're doing this. You're doing this because your father does that and you always do that and every time it's like this, you do that. And I know because I can see from the outside. (laughs) 
Well, that's your subjective experience. In contemporary feminist psychoanalysis, this is called the myth of the isolated mind. The idea that you can stand outside of an experience and analyze it as if you had a mind that is isolated. But we know, especially through you know uh, theories like attachment theory, that your mind is made up of um, interiorized relationships. How can it be completely isolated? Like I can be Freud and, lie and, and sit behind the couch where you can't see me. You lie down and I can analyze your dreams and be right. How is this possible? I'm always seeing it through my subjectivity. Yeah. yeah. Except that when you go to Rome and Melinda goes to Rome, you can't have the same experience of Rome. Because at some level, you're taking it in through your subjectivity. It seems like that just says right there that what, what is anything. Yeah. yeah. If it's none of, if it's one of those things or none of it. Yeah. Not yeah. Well, you know, in India at the same time, so in the context of this, of Patanjali's compilation of these teachings, there was a school of Buddhism called Yogacara Buddhism, which is considered the mind-only school. And they took this really far, and they said, well, then everything is in your mind. Because if, if you're perceiving that wall... There is no wall there. It's only in your mind. And Patanjali disagrees. And the Samkhikarika disagrees too. There's this idea that, like Ishvara Krishna says, if one other person is there and they see the wall, then it's real. <laughs> yeah. And what that does is it doesn't let you push to an idealistic place where it really is all in your mind. But it's good to go that far. Um, certainly in meditation practice, there can be such absorp absorption that there is really nothing there. Nothing. So how do you describe that? It's trying to show you how much of the process is in your own mind. Yeah. Like, have you ever accused somebody of something or over-interpreted a situation and then realize you're t completely wrong? Yeah? You know, you look at someone and think, oh, what a beautiful woman, and they turn around and it's a man. <laughs> or, I don't know. Maybe that's not the best example. It's happened to me many times. <laughs> the example I always like to use is um, this phenomenon in medita silent meditation retreats of having a meditation lover 
people go on meditation retreats. Like this always happens in these vipassana retreats. You know? And you don't get to talk to anyone. You're not even supposed to make eye contact, and you get a crush on somebody because the mind has to fixate that energy somewhere. So it's like someone up in the front of the room to the right, and you know everything about them, and uh, you're totally in love. You know, and you know about their job and the person next to you. You know about everything about them. The person in front of you drives you crazy. You hate them, and you know exactly why you hate them. And it's like. The whole place, you know the whole place. I mean, even when we're sitting in silence together, you can feel the character of every person. You know, all, someone just has to make a tiny move, or their stomach can make a sound, or any little thing, and you, you, you can feel their character. It's amazing, and everyone's still, no one's looking at each other. And then the meditation sheet ends, and then you meet this, these people in you. You know, you realize your intuition is 100% wrong. Completely wrong. And that person you fell in love with just is repulsive. <laughs> and the person who was repulsive seems the coolest person. Yeah. Has anybody had this experience? But Michael, isn't yeah. that a bit of a problem with meditation? <coughs> you can really go a little bit back. Yeah. Doing meditation. Yeah. So how do you kind of guide that so that you're not going crazy? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the question is one that Yeah. Yeah. Remember, yesterday we defined love as a meltdown. Um, Michelle and I have different theories about this. Michelle's theory is that. The, the, the deep practice of meditation in a consistent way, especially in retreat, um, makes you cuckoo. In what way? I understand. It makes you kind of crazy. You, you, it's hard. There's this deep trust you have in nature and a deeper distrust of your own mental constructions about things. And I think there's a healthy process of making you feel like you can't really trust your own ideas about things. Isn't that right? Yeah. <laughs> and the feeling of that is that you're a little bit cuckoo. And uh, when Michelle comes back from meditation retreats, it's like she can't go out. Because <laughs> she feels like she's nuts. And, uh, and I think that's really healthy. I also think that it then gives you a deeper trust in a different kind of ground where you're no longer trusting the ground of your own mental theories about life, but actually the way that life really is. And you start to see just how crazy our minds are and how we think that what we think is truth. That's one of the reasons why we translate satya as honesty and not as truth, especially capital T truth or capital T, the, capital T, truth. And instead, um, honesty. And that's why we leave that little, when we have shraddha, faith, we have to leave that little gap for doubt. And the meditation helps that window of doubt become grounded um, so that something else can float in to our theories about things. So it's not that 
Um, isn't that, that sort of that, that power, that freedom of your mind? That sort of is the goal that which is samadhi? Right? Meditation? Yeah. And then what do you do with the samadhi? You enjoy your life. Sure. And you have to enjoy it with other people. Yeah. Yeah. And that means you have to take actions that are rooted in your samadhi experience. So you all have this today. You're sitting there, and for one second, or hopefully a little bit longer, you're just sitting. Did anybody have this experience? Please say yes. <laughs> for one second, the mind just gives up, and then it starts back up again. And that experience is really beautiful. And uh, there's something about that experience, the more you practice, that those experiences link up with each other and create grooves. But they're very different kind of grooves than the normal day-to-day functioning of the mind. Right? So you're starting to plant the stillness seeds and they start to link up with each other and will change your life. So what's the benefit of just sitting? And then I always find if I did prime, a little bit of prime first, it would be easier. If I was doing it really gently. Mm-hmm. But if, like when I first started prime out, it made me nuts. It seemed like crazy. Mm-hmm. Right away, because it was mm-hmm. so forced, and I was always mm-hmm. hyperventilating and could never catch up with people. Yeah. So, in one instance, it would create this complete habit in my mind, mm-hmm. and then another instance, mm-hmm. it would actually calm me down enough to sort of sit still for long. Right. So, how do we practice that, and how do we, like, what, what comes first? Like, if pranayama is making you crazy, then just don't do it. Well, well it's just that, right? you have to refine your technique. Yeah, I think it was just like you first learn it, so you just do what the people tell you to yeah. do. And that was my first experience with it. So yeah. it was really overwhelming, and I thought, yeah. I'm never doing this again. Because yeah. I thought, it's going to make me nuts. Good, and you should never do it again like yeah. that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, but we're talking about a different kind of nuts when we say meditation makes you cuckoo. Yeah, what? Like, what's the difference? The difference is it's more from the place of stillness. Mm-hmm. You walk around, and you see people in pain. Mm-hmm. And you see people doing crazy things. And you start to feel like things are kind of crazy. Mm. And hopefully that motivates you to do your life differently. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had the experience where Mm -hmm. from a significant healing point in your life, you look back, you go, oh my God, what was I doing? Mm -hmm. This was nuts. And that's what we mean by samsara. That I, I was caught up in a wheel that was out of control. Maybe that's how we can translate dukkha. Dukkha is a life out of control. And there's no dukkha without samsara. Because samsara is that wheel that's spinning with centrifugal force perpetually. But the object is not dependent on either of those perceptions. If it were, what would happen to it when nobody was looking? If I were to go to the extreme and say, well, that wall is all in my mind, then what would happen if I turned around? 
In other words, if a tree falls in the forest, does anybody hear? Well, for Patanjali, it's a moot point. Yeah. Why are you speculating on that? The point is, when you do hear it, you're hearing it in your unique way, and you can trace that through your organization of your experience. But if you turn away from the wall, it's not going to fall down. That would be serious paranoia. <laughs> Imagine if you thought that if you turned away from visual objects, they would collapse. What would your life look like? Yeah. An object is only known by consciousness it has colored, otherwise it's not known. You can't have an object without a subject. Patterns of consciousness are always known by pure awareness, their ultimate unchanging witness. In other words, Purusha, pure awareness, stands behind the fluctuations of the mind. Consciousness is seen not by its own light, but by awareness. Right? Awareness is behind consciousness watching this. Furthermore, consciousness and its object cannot be perceived at once. Do you remember yesterday I was talking about that experience of looking at the chandelier? How you can't be aware of awareness and have the object at the same time. It has to be one or the other. If consciousness, this is the best. I love this something. If consciousness were perceived by itself instead of awareness, the chain of such perceptions would regress infinitely, imploding memory. Because if consciousness has some memory in it, then if it saw itself, it would be like looking into a mirror that's looking into a mirror and having infinite regression on both sides. So this is the only point of speculation, because you couldn't test this out, that it would implode memory. In other words, he's trying to make a point here, right? Is that awareness is seeing consciousness. Consciousness is not seeing consciousness. Once it is stilled, though, consciousness mirrors unchanging pure awareness and can reflect itself being perceived. And the best way of describing this is the great Dogen poem about the geese flying over a lake. And when they fly over a lake that's rippled, you get fragmented images of the geese. And when the water becomes perfectly still, the geese fly over and they're mirrored by the water. The water is mirroring the geese, but it doesn't take the shape of the geese or the shape of the vritti. So awareness is like a mirror. Right? So in meditation practice, you know what this feels like. There's complete stillness, and whatever is happening is happening, but you're not taking the form of it. There's a kind of indifference in a way through feeling. Then consciousness can be colored by both pure awareness and the phenomenal world, thereby fulfilling all its purposes. Which is a nod to Sankhya, which is saying the only reason why the phenomenal world exists 
is to see the difference between it and pure awareness. So here you get that radical dualism of Samkhya Yoga. This idea that Purusha is completely separate than Prakriti, than everything that changes. Pure awareness is unchanging. Separate, completely separate. Maybe. Completely separate. Can you say that pure awareness is like Brahman? Yeah. Even when colored by countless latent traits, consciousness, like all compound phenomena, has another purpose to serve awareness. As soon as one can distinguish between consciousness and awareness, the ongoing construction of the self comes to an end. In other words, <coughs> when you can see that in property there is nothing that is self, then you see that any construction of a self is just a fiction, is an illusion. So although on one hand you say, well, this is radical dualism, on the other hand, he's saying exactly the same thing as the Buddha, but from a completely different perspective. Right? That from the perspective of pure awareness, there is nothing there as self. And likewise, the Buddha says the same thing. You look into any compound phenomena and there is no self there. Consciousness now oriented towards this distinction can gravitate toward freedom, the fully integrated knowledge that pure awareness is independent from nature. So I was writing about this recently, and uh, a friend of mine uh, sent me an email saying, you know, I can't go as far as you saying that this text is a text of non-dualism. Because this is an example here of radical dualism, right? Completely independent. Uh, it's like that in words, but from the perspective of the practitioner, how is this dualism? There's pure awareness. <coughs> there's no self anywhere in the experience. There's no dualism. It's only non-dualistic in its language. So instead of thinking about this again intellectually, in your experience, when there is pure awareness, we talked about your experience this morning, does, is that dualism? Well, in linguistic terms, you could set up a vocabulary where it's dualism. But in the immediate perspective of the practitioner, in the immediate phenomenological experience, there is no Separateness, complete yoga, no doing. <coughs> my experience of that, is it's a different place. And that's why mm -hmm. there's no dualism, because I was in this place, and then that's a different place, and they're not even compelling. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense mm -hmm. to you? Yeah. It's actually spooky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spooky is synonymous with Abhinivesha. 
the falling apart of the story of me. Feels a bit spooky. Yeah. Yoga is a practice of getting spooked. Yeah. Um, Bion, the great and eccentric psychoanalyst, says that the process of psychotherapy is always one of traumatizing the ego. That the ego in its life is always going through a series of traumas. And that this is healthy. And I always like to compare that to contemporary science of systems theory, where in systems theory there's something called robustness, which is how a system becomes robust. And a system can only become robust when it breaks down a lot. Because when it breaks down, a healthy system can figure out how to, be, how to organize itself in more complex ways to deal with the process of breaking down. So a computer is, a, is not a robust system. When your computer breaks down, it can't reorganize itself. That's not an example of a healthy ecological system. But a forest has a forest fire. And then what happens after the forest fire? Well, you know, in Ontario, they have those jack pine trees in northern Ontario. They don't have them here in South Ontario, I don't think. But jack pine, they only open in a forest fire. There has to be a certain temperature, and then they open. And that's one of the things we know about forest fires, right? They can be very, very healthy for a forest. We'd think about that, I think, if we had more forests, we would let that happen more. Yeah. So that's how a system is robust, like a human being. Every time you break down, you become more robust. Any gaps in discriminating awareness allow distracting thoughts to emerge from the store of latent impressions. These distractions can be subdued as the causes of suffering were by tracing them back to their origin or through meditative absorption. One who regards even the most exalted states disinterestedly discriminating continuously between pure awareness and the phenomenal world, enters the final stage of integration in which nature is seen to be a cloud of irreducible experiential substances. If you look at the Sanskrit there, that's called Dharma Mega Samadhi, which is pretty much the end of Samadhi. Um, Dharma, the word Dharma means the the it means different things. It can mean law of things. It also means the smallest perceivable substances. So I like this image of the cloud, right? If you look into a puddle, it's just, it seems like an entity. If you look up at a cloud when it's raining, it looks like a thing. But if you look carefully while it's raining at a cloud, and you watch the water leave the cloud, when you look into a puddle, you see the puddle is made up of the staccato of the raindrops, right? That's the image he's using here, that you look into anything and you see that it's made up of a lot of other things infinitely in all directions 
that are in constant motion. There is no thing there. This realization extinguishes the causes of suffering and karma. Once all the layers and imperfections concealing truth have been washed away, insight is boundless and there is little left to know. (laughs) You don't have to go to the library anymore. (laughs) Then the seamless flow of reality, its transformations colored by the gunas, begins to break down, fulfilling the true mission of consciousness one can see that the flow is really a series of discrete events, each corresponding to the merest instant in time in which one form then becomes another form. Anybody who does gardening knows this. You're always watching one form turn into another form. Anybody who has a compost toilet knows this. (laughs) You eat lunch, the form changes, goes into the toilet, becomes another form, the toilet gets dumped into the garden, becomes another form, and in that form you grow your lunch, and then you eat it, and it keeps going. You die, and when you die, if you don't get injected with chemicals, you get put in a casket, the casket gets eaten by ants, your body gets eaten by worms, the worms excrete you, and then a flower grows, and then a bee comes and pollinates the flower, and then you get some honey from the bee's comb, and then you eat the honey, and then you die, and it keeps going. You get burned in a funeral pyre, you go up in smoke, then it rains, and you come back down into the ocean, and so on. Some of you have seen sometimes back here, we have the beautiful image of Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin also known as Avalokiteshvara, is the Buddhist deity of compassion. Beautiful image. For one, Kuan Yin is always standing up and is always blown to the left a little bit because she's always blown by samsara. She's blown by the wind of the world. She's never standing up straight like this. She's always being blown over by the world a little bit. It's a beautiful image. But what's even more beautiful is she's always holding a little bottle and pouring it, which is uh, symbolic of her tears. She's always taking her tears and pouring them back into the ocean. Your tears are made of salt water. So at a literal level, there's an image of continuity. But you take your personal tears and you pour them back into the tears of the world. You take all of your personal uh, symptoms and you hear about other people's personal symptoms and you start to leave your subjectivity as the most prominent. And you start to see what's beyond your subjectivity, which is the universality of suffering. And that's why we can maybe say that the kleshas are probably the most significant theory we have of human psychology because it's so universal. It's so universal. It's much more universal, I think, than Freudian or Jungian or Lyrian ideas. 
that are very, very culturally dependent, which is important. But there is also an importance in seeing the universal elements of our psychology too. Kuan Yin takes her tears and she puts them back into the ocean. They're not hers. You could also say she's not just crying her tears. Is your sadness really your sadness? Tremendous sense to me um, once when I was talking with my Chinese medical doctor, and it was again we were talking about something about my parents, and again that old familiar sorrow of you know, that, you know maybe them not quite having enough time for me at a certain time in my life, in my development, when I needed them, and you know it, it hurts very much, and you know I can't do anything that. I'm so tired of, of feeling sad about this. You know, I'm almost 38. I, I feel ashamed that I should be still crying about this at this late age. And she said, no, you, you cry so that you, you can feel compassion for someone else who's just like you. Because if you cry now, then that means someday you're going to be in a position to be able to really help someone else. And that was such a neat turning around because it felt extremely healing for me to suddenly realize that that um, you know there is nothing to feel guilty about in that this sorrow had enormous benefit because if I could then wish back that no one else would suffer in this way and actually mm-hmm. have some sort of action. Uh-huh. And I do know because I know this intimately, yeah. I know what to say. <laughs> yeah. Remember also that your work as a yoga practitioner is to work with dukkha. The personal elements are not what's being described here. So when somebody comes to you and they're suffering, you're working with their suffering. If there is someone who comes to you and they're suffering because they have been um, through a war, and you have not been through a war, or they come to you because they have chronic pain, and you have not experienced chronic pain, it doesn't mean you can't work with them. Because what your skill is, as a maturing yogi, is to work with the dukkha. So, sometimes we have a personal experience, like let's say you have a personal experience of pain that's 7 out of 10, the dukkha might just be one out of ten. Some people have physical pain that's one out of ten, and the dukkha is nine out of ten. So your job in sharing yoga with people is how to work with the dukkha, not the personal part of the problem. Because I can't relate, maybe, to your particular pain from, you know, being a prisoner of war. But... In my experience, perhaps my dukkha has been a lot more than your dukkha. Even though the personal circumstances seem more dramatic. Does this make sense? One person's personal pain may be 1 out of 10 and their dukkha may be 9 out of 10. 
but maybe your personal pain has been 5 out of 10. And if your dukkha is 9 out of 10, you know how to work with their 9 out of 10 dukkha. Does that make sense? <coughs> yeah. Can you look at it as suffering or dukkha is maybe it's not, <coughs> and not degrees, but just suffering in general? Yeah. Although people have different degrees of suffering. Oh, oh you know, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you're working with the suffering, not necessarily with the pain. Yeah. It said, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. One can see that the flow is actually a series of discrete events, each corresponding to the merest instant of time in which one form becomes another. Last sentence, line 34. Freedom is at hand when the fundamental qualities of nature, each of their transformations witnessed at the moment of its inception, are recognized as irrelevant to pure awareness. Pure awareness stands alone, grounded in its very nature, the power of pure seeing, that is all. Chitti Shakti Ritihi. That is all. Um, you'll notice in this translation and in every other translation you will ever find that there are three Sanskrit words here that are not translated. Interestingly enough, Sva Rupa Shunya. Shunya means empty. Sva means self, and rupa means form. That pure awareness, like all of the qualities of nature, are empty of self-form. Are empty of self-form. Freedom is at hand when you see that there is nothing to cling to as I, me, or mine, because everything is empty of its own self-form. Purusha doesn't have self-form. So all this talk about Purusha sounding like dualistic language, well, here the whole thing gets turned inside out. And he says, but Purusha, it's Swarupa Shunya. So if you wanted Purusha to be your deity, it's been working for you. If you're a Sankhya Yoga, this is all great. But then he says, oh, but it's Swarupa Shunya. It's empty of self-form. So if you're a Buddhist, you go, oh, finally, it's empty. But then previously, you're being tortured by the fact that it was given a name. And this is, I think, why this text has lasted so long outside of the temple. Because Patanjali here creates a great paradox that has always made people uncomfortable. He's sitting on the fence between Sankhya and Buddhist terminology, and he's not landing on either sides, even though in the last chapter he's been bouncing back and forth 
and then he ends up right in the middle of the fence, without even picking the middle of the fence as the place to land. And in doing so, he creates a theological theological paradox so that you can't hold on to the system as a system. So the system he's created now is impossible to hold on to because he's practiced yoga on the system of yoga. It's like he's doing psychology to the psychology. He's turning the thing inside out and then back again like a snake eating its own tail. So just as you are about to hold on to a new system, he's pulled it away from you. It's kind of a twist ending. I don't know. You have to ask Chip. No. Um, yeah. Because there's this great paradox here, right? Kaivalya. So Kaivalya refers to the isolation of Prakriti and Purusha. That what changes is totally separate than pure awareness. But then both sides are empty of an inherent self-form. The whole thing collapses. And I think that captures what it's like for the meditator. There's nothing there. No thing. Pure experience, then that's it. I got that. See, if you say pure experience, and that's it, you've created substantiality there on both sides. He's leaving you speechless. You, you read this last sentence and you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What am I supposed to do with this? Depends. It depends what you were holding on to. I mean, I think it's designed as a let down because it's asking you to let down whatever you were holding on to there as something that was giving you some peace and security. And that if everything is in constant change, your practice should become so simple, I think he's saying, is that as your practice matures, it becomes simpler and simpler, which is there's nothing that you can hold on to as I, me, or mine. Nothing belongs to you. People don't belong to you. They're not mine. They're not yours. Things are what they are, which are not things. And if you didn't have things, you wouldn't be able to see that. It's like trying to practice non-attachment if you have no attachments. You have to have attachments to practice non-attachment. Otherwise, what are you not going to be attached to? You have to have svarupa to have svarupa shunya. Otherwise, what's empty? In other words, if you fall down on the ground, you can hurt yourself, but you need the ground to get back up again. Your subjectivity gets in the way, but then you can use the getting in the way as the path to the practice. I think so. Certain degree of suffering, but... um, Otherwise, how do you 
how do you feel it with other people? Yeah. Let me read the poem again. Close your eyes without falling asleep. Waiting for a ride. Standing at the baggage passing time. Austin, Texas airport. My ride hasn't come yet. My former wife is making websites from her home. One son is seldom seen. The other one and his wife have a boy and girl of their own. My wife and stepdaughter are spending weekends in town so she can get to high school. My mother, 96, still lives alone and she's in town too. Always gets her sanity back just barely in time. My former, former wife has become a unique poet. Most of my work, such as it is, is done. Full moon was October 2nd this year. I ate a moon cake, slept out on the deck, white light beaming through the black bows of the pine. Owl hoots and rattling anters, castor and pollux rising strong. It's good to know that the pole star drifts, that even our present night sky slips away. Not that I'll see it. Or maybe I will, much later, some far time walking the spirit path in the sky. That long walk of spirits, where then you fall right back into the narrow, painful passageway of the bardo. Squeeze your little skull, and there you are again, waiting for your ride. In other words, what does? What does? He's standing there waiting for his ride, and while he's waiting, you've had this experience, right? You look back and you start reflecting on your life, and how much has happened in your lifetime. Next thing you know, you fall right back into the present moment, squeeze through the narrow bardo, and then you're back in life again. In every moment and in every life cycle. Waiting for your ride. It's nice that it's in an airport because usually you have that sensation. Airports have this no man's land. Yeah. And mm. it actually gives you that opportunity until you're back. Yeah. Every time you're in between. This is how you work with thought and meditation practice, is you turn your body into an airport. You know, one way of talking about working with thought that is often used in meditation is, you know, noticing how if the sun comes through the window, it lands, if it comes through the south window, it usually lands on the north wall. If it comes from the east, lands on the west wall, 
that comes from the west, it lands on the east wall. But it only lands there if you give it a wall. If there's no wall, it doesn't land. <coughs> and likewise, the same is true with the mind. If there is pure awareness, there is no place for thought to land. So you create in your mind such spaciousness that you, you make of yourself like a no-landing zone. There is nowhere for thought to land. It doesn't cling anywhere. It just moves right through awareness, which is not even you. If there's a you, then it's going to land somewhere. And it's going to give you the, the feeling that there is a you. But otherwise, you don't give things a place to land. Which is the key. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. That's what he's saying here, yeah. And that is... So it's not really sort of... Um, I guess sometimes you think about, oh, you know, I'm supposed to be... You know, doing all this, and I'm just going to be this... I don't even know, almost non-human, like... Figure or something, and mm-hmm. you're not going to experience stuff or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's that's not it. Yeah. Right? It's just sort of there's so little attachment that you're completely engaged. Non-attachment means full engagement. It's like when you're with people and you're really caught up in being attached to your point of view. You're not present with them, and the less you're attached to your view. The more you're present. It's not detached. Non attachment. Yeah. But sometimes it gets. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes we translate non attachment as detachment or indifference. Yeah. That's not what you're saying. That's not what you're saying at all. I don't know that is wrong. Yeah. Well, that's why we're spending so much time defining terms, yeah. and um, that we're being a bit picky in how we're talking so that our language is uh, clarifying our practice, which supports our practice because we're understanding how the terms are being used rather than being sloppy about, you know, words like ahamkara, dukkha, brahman. These words are, they've been debated for thousands of years. And um, I think it's important to understand what the terms are referring to in your experience. Mm -hmm. So that after a while, just you stop defining it in English. Mm -hmm. You say dukkha and you kind of know what that means. Mm -hmm. And you need 20 English words to describe it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm always, in my own mind, trying to retranslate terms I use so that I can get closer as I mature to what those Sanskrit words are saying. And sometimes I look back and think, oh my God, was I really translating it like that? Because 
that's not really what it's like in experience. And I used to say, oh, the Yoga Sutra is, a, is radical non-dualism. I mean, Purusha Prakriti. And that's just because I just didn't have the experience yet. And I think that most of the translators of, well, many translators of these texts are academics. Uh, and they, yeah. they understand words, but they haven't had the experience. You get that so much in the Yoga Sutra. If you don't have meditation experience, chapter four is just fudging. You know, because you don't really, if you haven't practiced meditation, you don't really understand what he's talking about here. You just have to rely on other people's interpretations. Is there any concluding remarks? Okay, any remarks? Yes. But what is the difference between the latent impression and the, that memory? Because they are both of one piece. So on the spectrum, how do you distinguish between the two? I don't know. I don't know how you would distinguish between the two, really. So what strategically is perhaps the reason for why he would even have two terms? I don't know. I have to think about that. I don't think of it in that like one had to do with this life and the other had to do with I know, so like like oh, yeah, maybe different levels of depth. Yeah. Some way of it distinguishing hmm. is it just a scratch or is it the Grand Canyon? Yeah. <laughs> has it been a long there a long time? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So we come into this world with already impressions. We sure do. And we leave a lot of impressions in the world. But you want to pay attention in your life to what kind of impressions you're leaving when you die. But if you really understand that, you're dying every minute. So Try not to keep thinking about death and rebirth as this thing that happens at the end of your me existence, but there's things that happen in each moment of existence, there's birth and death. And then suddenly you're talking about causality again. Because what kind of residue do you want to leave at the end of the day? You know, there's this person I work with who's dying, and he's not going to be around very much longer. And uh, so... I was talking with him about the fear of death, of being Vaishya. And he said, I'm not scared of um, dying. I just want to make sure that I do this day really, really well. Okay? He's not scared that he's going to die. It's not what's happening for him. What he's more fearful of is today screwing up um, relationships. Yeah. In other words, the, the death structures his day so that he wants to do his relational existence, right? It's pushed him into seeing how relational things are and he wants to do this the best he can. So the residue he's leaving today um, is positive. It's kind of a beautiful... 
When he said that, I, it's all I thought about for weeks. Mm. Like that mm-hmm. sentence just went over. I think you do that for, for your clients because I mean, they're all terrified of death. Yeah. I mean, that's not every day. Yeah. They're really, yeah. They're not living well. Yeah. 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 You go on, and then all of a sudden it's sort of, you know, and then it creeps in every once in a while, but then it's like, it's hard. So yeah. It's sort of, yeah. Funny, Michael, you just said, I know this person who's dying right after saying how we're all dying at every moment. Like, there's oh. still this, there's still yeah. this duality, like, yeah. you know this person who's dying, <laughs> but it was still a separate thing, and no matter how far I think you get into the practice, I'm always flipping back and forth between yeah. waking up and going back to sleep and realizing that I'm yeah. But then the rhetoric that we build just pushes yeah. it away all the time. The last chapter in the book that I finished is, is called The Most Astounding Thing. And it's called that because there's this great story where um, in Yoga Vasishta, actually happens in a couple of places, but the student goes to a sage and says, what is the most astounding thing? And the sage says, the most astounding thing is that uh, people seeing other people die don't realize that they're also going to die. That's the most astounding thing. And like Margaret says, it just creeps in. <laughs> you know? Especially in a culture that... that Detest death and keeps it absolutely in the shadows. Oh yeah, we hide it. We try and clean it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I highly recommend. And some of you have heard this a million times, but there's this fantastic book by Ernest Becker called *The Denial of Death*, and it's about how what we repress most is death. And he takes it pretty far. He says that. It's through the denial of death that cultures become aggressive. And it's really, really beautiful, beautiful book. It was a best-selling book in 1974, I think. Yeah, but do you think that, that the practice of yoga supports that um, eventual, you know, that eventually that sort of comes, that whole death meditation, maybe, like, as you... Mm-hmm. The practice of yoga, I mean, in general, the whole practice. To a certain degree, you start to see death every moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think you stop thinking about death so much. Right. Because the first phase is, whoa, death. <laughs> um, but like I was saying today in Corpse Foes, there's no death. Because when you're dying, there's just what's happening. People around you, or sensation in the body, or you're just present with what's there, 
And rather than death being this grand concept overarching everything, there's just what you're experiencing. So you have to bring it down. It's kind of like a wedding. You know, if you're a kid and a wedding's like the big, I mean, for some people, you know, <laughs> you know, I remember, you know, one example is, you know, in our, where I grew up, you know, the big thing is when you're 13, you have a bar mitzvah. I was in love with this girl. And um, I was, uh, you know, I was 13. And uh, when I was having my bar mitzvah and I was, you know, you chant, basically, in front of a lot of people, um, I was, all I could think about was, you know, what she was wearing in the audience and, you know, if she liked my voice and if we could meet at the party afterwards. And, um, and that was my experience of the, but my whole life was like the bar mitzvah, it's going to change me and it's going to be fun. The other part of that story is we had this group of friends and uh, none of us wanted to have a bar mitzvah. So we decided that we would all smoke a joint right before our bar mitzvah. <laughs> and uh, so we would all we all invited each other to our bar mitzvahs. And right before we had to go up, we went outside to the special spot and smoked a oh, joint. <laughs> so when I was up there, all like, don't ever tell my parents. That. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that uh, I was going to ask you if that's why Adipika says that if you practice yoga, you defeat death about 150 times. Like, yeah. like every page you read, yeah. says, practice and you'll, uh, you'll, and you'll defeat yeah. death. Surely uh, defeat death in 30 days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's two ways you can take that, right? Superficially, it's, it's kind of like how we talk about anti-aging now. I'm sure that would attract some people. But what are we talking about, about death, really? I mean, the same is true with birth. Sometimes you say, if death is inevitable, then the only thing you can change once you're born is your birth. Because you're going to die. But you've already been born. So you just don't birth yourself again. Right? No matter what, you're going to die. The story of me is going to die. So if the story of you has already been born, then just don't keep birthing it. Some of you know Sato, who comes to class sometimes. And he once said something. He said, I don't understand. If human beings are already here, then why are we trying to keep, why are we trying to keep creating ourselves? Why do we try and keep trying to be here? We're already here. Bing. <laughs> Your practice just started. <laughs> but also, isn't there like a sort of an evolution to what's happening to the world and the universe or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, just as maybe as far as vibrations go and everything like that, doesn't mm-hmm. sort of lift? more work that you do mm-hmm. is lift. So it is lifted and so maybe the more work that's being done in this lifetime, like I think maybe humanity will change. And mm-hmm. I don't know, hundred years. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, if you really understand these these vasanas or these samskaras, then you know, if we're undoing or reinforcing certain kinds of seeds, just like you know, now we're all trying to find heritage seeds because we realize we've made a big mistake. We've done so much crossbreeding and genetic manipulation of seeds. We, we don't have a lot of good seeds anymore, so there's great work being done. I mean, what better work can you do now than, you know, finding the heritage seeds? That's fantastic ecological action. So if you're planting, psychologically speaking now, better seeds, then hopefully they will sprout. Yeah, because I think also the same like even now with children, you know, when I see your son coming in here, and I'm like, right. well, he's very lucky, you know, he's got, you know, a lot of help yeah. in this world yeah. to sort of guide him through, but, yeah. you know, maybe he already came in with a higher maybe understanding, or maybe he'll be able to get things that much faster. Yeah. You know, and that, that sort of keeps snowballing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, this idea of the evolution of collective consciousness. Yeah. Personally, I don't know if I buy it. I like the theory. Yeah. I don't know if we're so much more aware than people were thousands of years ago. Maybe we're aware of some things, I think, culturally that get passed on through the culture, but to me it, it gets a bit speculative, and I'm not such an optimist. But it's hard to say. on Monday, and I thought that was radical dualism. You were <laughs> separating yourself from culture. Because I, I know in my, I was so cynical. Somebody, when I first went to your class years ago, it was first year of class yeah. I went to. I was so cynical. I just said, I don't want to go to yoga this week. The view does. So I just didn't want to yeah. go. And then something happened. But if I had never, you know, I was lucky enough to stumble there. Mm-hmm. So to say that, that each individual, you know, it's not affecting the whole culture. I don't think you believe that. So where is your system? No, we're saying we are affecting the whole culture, but this idea that human culture is so much more peaceful. I mean, we know that more humans have died in the last century than any other recorded century in history. And I think that more people have died in wars in the last 20 years. Is that right? Than in any other recorded time in history in 20 years. I mean... It's hard for me to think that we're getting better. We're evolving into some better, more peaceful. So to me, I just don't even get into the debate. For me, it's like, what can we do now to be better people, to contribute to culture, and um, these overarching ideas about how it's what evolution is doing. That in my own experience, I don't feel that. Oh, I'm not. I'm not in any way. Because you're saying you don't feel it in your own experience, but yet I don't, and I don't see it in culture. I, I don't. I don't see a culture that's more peaceful. But the culture is only made up of its constituents. Ever. Sure. Yeah. So, so, are you saying that for everyone, for example, who came to this, you know, workshop, are there an equal number of people who are? falling asleep at the same time. It's hard to say. Maybe there are a hundred times more people falling asleep. Turn on the television. Yeah. I do feel we are in the minority. 
That's this joke about reality TV. (laughs) And then we believe that that is reality on TV. That's... What I'm saying comes from art school and talking about making art for the general public and people saying there is no general public in this whole argument of you know, who goes to see art. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, if I go to see art, then the general public goes to see art because I'm right. just the general public. I'm, yeah. I'm, pra- I'm a practitioner, mm-hmm. but I'm just the general public. I'm yeah. Nobody in particular. So yeah. I don't know that you can... I, I just feel like, you know, one of our things, as a teacher, I think, mm-hmm. you're making the assumption that you are you are wrestling with these ideas in order mm-hmm. to connect with other people to say these ideas are important mm-hmm. and in hopes that it would proliferate. And when do you want that proliferation to mm-hmm. stop? You never want it to stop. You want it to go. We want people to stop driving their SUVs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just saying that personally, I don't think of it in such grand terms. Yeah, just keep it on one person. Yeah. If I can t- have a whole day and speak nicely to Arlen, I'm happy. Uh, if this world is going to be free of SUVs, to me, I, I just don't think that way. Yeah. Would I like that? Of course I'd like that. But uh, I just see it as I'm, 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 I'm careful about too much idealization. Not that you don't want to try and help the world in different ways, but really, you um, can't change anybody else. You can't do mm-hmm. anything. Really, you can't really change people. You can't change yourself. So, really, always fall back on on that person and uh, where you're coming from. And then your world changes, yeah. and your view might change. And you might not see it that way, and you might see. Yeah. It's like it has to come back. Always has to come back. Sure, and some and sometimes you're, you know, a facilitator for other people's change, or sometimes, you know, I know sometimes with this work that I do, you have to say very difficult things to people sometimes, and say, you know, I I think you're misguided, (laughs) or things that are hard for people to hear sometimes, and um, hopefully when that's done with good intention. Um, people can hear. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's not like you're not helping. You're doing yeah. what you can with your capacity as you mature and evolve. And yeah. As you mature and evolve, mm-hmm. then you bring it out. Yes. It's not about like looking out there and seeing this. Yes, and, and John is saying that your maturation, your evolvement is the culture's right. evolvement. Okay. Corpse pose. Roll out your yoga mat.